Thanks so much for that. Now, uh, you will have noticed already that as humans, by God's design, uh, we do ask each other questions. As we have come here today, the way that we got to know a number of you and the way that you got to know us as we were being interviewed was by questions. Questions are a really important and fundamental part of what it actually means to be human. Because we're inquisitive. We care. It's one of the first things that, as a child is speaking, they do, is they ask questions. For my grandma, who, as she was getting older and older, one of the final things she was still able to do was ask questions. Her memory was going, but she could still ask questions. Now, why is that? Why are questions so important to us? As I said, it's because we care about one another, because we want to know things. Uh, Sometimes, though, it's because we're hurting. Sometimes it's because there is pain or we're lost. One of the most fundamental questions of our age right now, I want to suggest is, who am I? Who am I? And that question will come in all sorts of different versions and forms. What am I supposed to do with my life? What, what, what do I contribute? What do I bring? What am I good at? Why, why could I do that? It's all coming back to this very fundamental question of who am I? And you see, so much of the pain in our world at the moment is because people are lost trying to answer that question of who am I? And so people are trying to discover themselves, that idea of self-discovery. They're trying to put on new versions of themselves. My brother and sister are quite a lot younger than I am. They are 17 and uh, 12, 13. Uh, And they talk about self-discovery is the main thing that their friends talk about. Who am I? And they talk about it. It's almost like they're putting on different clothes every time. Now I'm like this and now I'm like this. But they're always trying to work out who they are. But it's not just, it's easy for us to look at teenagers and think, oh yes, that's something that teenagers do. We're all trying to work out, in a sense, who am I? Now you might be dismissive of that sort of question and think, oh yeah, they, people are getting lost over this. People are getting really lost over this question. And it's coming from a real pain. But people need to stop, as my grandparents would have said, navel-gazing. Because you know that... It means they're looking at themselves so much. They're just they're, they're interest, so introspected that they're hurting themselves. But if you're very dismissive of that, of that question, that it's a really important thing for us to know. Who am I? How do I fit? How do I fit in this community? How do I fit in the world? But if you spend a lot of time on that question, if you're someone who does dwell a lot on that and it's a, a cause of great pain for you, you might say, I understand. There is, you do want to find out about who you are, but... The challenge comes when we realise, as we're asking that question for ourselves, who am I, and we're looking at ourselves, there's only so far we can get. When we're looking for the answer within ourselves, and we're looking so much at ourselves, we can actually be short-sighted. We can blind ourselves to finding the answer actually out. And we see the challenge when we get to Jesus here. As the start of this series that uh, you'll be jumping into at Marsfield of questions that Jesus has asked, this is a wonderful question to start with because Jesus doesn't just help people on their own sense of self-discovery. Jesus doesn't just help them work out who they are. But in the end, what he does is help them work that out, but he does it by helping them work out who he is. 
the way we actually work out ourselves better is by finding out about Jesus. Jesus is the North Star. Jesus is the guide. Here's the way that we actually work out life. The more you know Jesus, the more you understand him, the, the better you have him in your sights and know who he is. Can I suggest you will know yourself better. You will know your place in the world better. And so it is a wonderful joy that we do get to sit under God's word this morning and hear from him about who Jesus is because it gives us clarity. And if you're exploring Jesus here or you're not confident about who Jesus is, it's a wonderful opportunity for you today to get more clarity. But if you are confident, you're like, I know who Jesus is. I want us to to still sit under this and to see who Jesus is afresh. It is too easy for God's word to wash over us and not for us to soak in it. So let's soak in it this morning and to really drink this up to see who Jesus is. Have a look at the first verse there. If you've got a Bible, uh, as I'm sure you are encouraged, keep it open. Uh, I'm going to be working through it. Uh, So it'd be wonderful for you to be able to see it there with me. Look again at verse 13. When Jesus came uh, to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, uh, if you're familiar, uh, for those who aren't, the Son of Man is Jesus' favourite title for himself, the Son of Man. And so he's going into this new region and he's trying to scout out what is public opinion here. Caesarea Philippi, they've moved into this region. And what do people think? What, What do people out there think? It's almost like political polling. What are people out there saying? Listen to the answer. Verse 14. They replied, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. There's a whole range of different answers of what people think, which is really interesting that they're throwing back to these old uh, heroes of the Jewish faith. Uh, And John the Baptist, uh, quite a modern hero for them. But what do they hold in common? They're all people who spoke for God, calling people to turn back to him. And so when they're seeing Jesus' life and ministry, they're seeing someone who is calling people away from where they're going, away from their sin, away from themselves, and back to God. And so they're recognizing in Jesus something like John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, the prophets. He's doing the same sort of thing they were, so maybe he's one of them. And so I want to, for a moment, before we actually get into the questions and the answers that we get here, I want to spend some time in thinking about what do people around here think? I'm glad this is a slightly different question to the one that you're doing uh, coming up. But at Laneway in Melbourne, we had the same sort of pattern of going out into the community and asking questions. And uh, I coordinated that sort of area of church, the, the mission area of church. And so I don't often enter that with an expectation of, well, these will probably be the top three, four answers. And it's been interesting every time. There's always been surprises. It's always been really helpful for me. So can I encourage you, please do ask your friends because sometimes their answers, their thoughts will actually be quite a surprise to you and open up an opportunity. We asked them, who is Jesus? That was the whole question that we asked them. I'm not sure if you've done something like that in the past. And I want to say three top answers that we got. The top was, Jesus is a good teacher. Jesus is the one, and people would often talk about, he's the one who said, uh, do to others as you'd have them do to you, or don't judge, or you will be judged. He's a good teacher. He teaches us how to live with one another. He gave us morals and lived them out. Uh, Also, a bit of an indication of where we were in Melbourne. 
uh, we had quite a number of people, a quarter of people said Jesus is a prophet, the second greatest prophet. And so if you can guess the community around us, we had quite a large Muslim community around us. And they would say, well, yes, of course, we love, we love Jesus, Isa, as they call him. We love him. He is one of the greatest prophets. If you actually spend time reading the Quran, he's given a better reputation than Muhammad himself. He's the only one that's ever called perfect in the Quran, besides God himself. It's very interesting. And so they revere him. He's a, he's a great prophet. And the third most common might not surprise you, and this is the more secular atheist answer, was Jesus is a myth. Jesus never really existed. He's a nice story that we like to tell ourselves or that people have liked to tell each other in a time when people didn't know better. They didn't know, they didn't know really how to, to understand reality and so they, they told it as a story and people just picked it up as true. They were the top three answers. But can I suggest, I don't know if they're the same sort of answers. They, they well could be, even if they're not necessarily among your friends. There could be others. We also had people suggest that Jesus was one of many gods uh, in our Hindu community around us. Uh, we had a number of others. What we do when uh, people are picking up, well, this is the Jesus that I see, this is the Jesus that I like, I want to suggest to you it's like a food court. It's like a food court. Now, I don't know what your preference to go to in a food court is. Uh, Ellen is very good and strict, and I would just eat at places like food courts all the time, and she cooks wonderful, delicious, home-cooked, healthy meals. Uh, but when I go, I always go for an Indian. If there is Indian there, that will be my preference. Uh, for Lucy, our middle, she'll go for sushi. Annabelle will go for rice paper rolls. Leo will eat anything. Ellen, Ellen's quite good too. She'll, she'll be quite adventurous. She'll probably go for something she hasn't tried before. And we can all go. We were selling our house last year and there was times we had to leave the house just on dinner time. So we went, okay, let's just go down to the shops. We'll just eat. We could all pick different things. It was wonderful. But you, there's an appropriateness to that, isn't there? Because it's, it's choice. It's preference. It's taste. But when we approach Jesus like he's a matter of choice and preference and taste, we're doing something very dangerous. One of the biggest problems in our world, I want to suggest, is that we're, we're conflating or confusing things that are preference and things that are reality. Sometimes we get very strong about things that are preference and very loose on things that are reality. But Jesus isn't actually the type of thing that we can be loose about. He doesn't give us the option of holding whatever opinion we would like about him. Because Jesus is a good teacher. He did say those things. But he also was the one that said, repent, turn to God. There was a reason they thought he was like John the Baptist, like Elijah. Because he confronted people. People were offended. And Jesus is a prophet. He does come from God, but not like the Quran says. There is much that the Quran gets very, very crucially wrong about Jesus. And Jesus, the myth, you might have heard this many times here. I know Hans has an interest in history. I do too. I studied ancient history at uni as well. And it's just inconceivable that Jesus is actually a myth. It's one of the, the biggest impossibilities in history is that Jesus didn't exist. He definitely existed. But can I suggest as well that as Christians, if you are a believer here, it's very easy for us to look with a little bit of derision at the people outside and go, oh, that's what they think. Yeah, I know. That's... But we can have these warped, not complete answers as Christians as well of who Jesus is. One is that Jesus is the, the, the life coach. Jesus is here to make my life better, to make my life more comfortable. And so we get shocked 
when pain happens. Now, I don't want to suggest we shouldn't be hurt when pain happens. When things come that, when we get sick, when people around us get sick, when uh, we get tormented by different pains and people in our family are struggling and money gets tied and all these sorts of things, they, they should hurt. We are human. They should hurt. Jesus himself felt pain. What Jesus never was was shocked that pain happened to him. We shouldn't be shocked. But there's a way that we can approach Jesus that is like that. We can even come to Jesus as though he is only, hear me carefully, only our saviour. He is our saviour, but we can approach him as though when we think about our sin, we can go, but I'm saved. We can very quickly go, yep, but I'm saved. I'm going to heaven and just go on our way and think, I'll just say sorry to God next time that I sin. There's a way that we can approach Jesus like he is just our saviour and he doesn't do more for us than that. That would be far too little if Jesus kept us as we were. So we're going to see more of what that is. But have a look at what, Je- what Simon Peter's answer is there in verse, uh, sorry, verse 15. Jesus does something before Simon answers. He directs it from the outside and brings the focus on his disciples. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? And I want you to be thinking about that this morning. Not just go, of course I know who Jesus is, and shortcut yourself from doing the hard thinking. Who do you actually say Jesus is? Simon Peter's answer in verse 16 is wonderful. You are the Messiah. And Jesus commends it in verse 17. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. This wasn't revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Jesus is the Messiah. That is a wonderful answer. But again, there's a number of uh, sicknesses that I think we can be prone to as Christians. And one of them is, as we hear these sorts of words like Messiah, it can just become a title. Oh yeah, Jesus is the Messiah. Yep, great. But there's actually, we want to know what Messiah means and think about it and reflect and make sure we're calling that to mind. What does Messiah mean? Because... uh, Charles, our now King Charles, you know, one of his titles is Keeper of the Cows. One of his titles is Keeper of the Cows. Titles say something, but I want to suggest if we don't think deeply, we can just throw it on like a title like that and just go, okay, that's who Jesus is. What does it mean that he's the Messiah? In short, it means that he is the King, the promised King. You might be familiar with this, but it's the Hebrew, it comes from the Hebrew word which means anointed one. It's the same as the Greek word, which is where we get Christ from. It's a description of one who had oil poured on them, which was their way of celebrating that someone was king. I think in our context, if we were to go for something that made most quick sense to us, I would say it's probably something like saying the crowned. Because when someone was declared king then, they poured oil on them and it declared them to be Messiah king. So like if we were to call Jesus the crowned one, We know that when someone has the crown placed on their head, that they are the ruler, they are the king or the queen. And the Jews, they knew they needed the Messiah. And there was the big promise because of all of the pain that they had had of uh, various people coming in and ruling them. But even when they tried to rule themselves, if you know what happens in the Old Testament, they often did a really, really bad job of it. They often were led away from the living and true God to worship dead idols. They led their own hearts away. They needed a Messiah. And a Messiah, they, the hope that they had was that, that he would be Messiah, son of David. 
David, the great king. Listen to uh, chapter 23 of Jeremiah. I'll read it briefly for us. Uh, But verse 5 and on. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. There's this hope. There will be a king. There will be a king. The leaders now are awful. But there will be a day. It is coming. And so the Jews held on to Messiah, son of David, as such a great hope and promise. Someone who would rule wisely. Even in our day, we feel that. How wonderful would it be if we could have the promise of having a a ruler of Australia that we could know is a wise ruler. Or whatever place in the world that you're seeing conflict right now, imagine if they had a wise king. How wonderful that would be. Continue in verse 6. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety This is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteous saviour. There is a hope, a hope that he is coming, a hope that he will be this son of David. But notice, that's not exactly the title that Peter gives him. It's not Messiah, son of David. Notice what he calls him. You are the Messiah, not the son of David, the son of the living God. And we got a hint of that in Jeremiah that his name uh, himself of this rule will be the Lord, our righteous saviour. There's a hope that as uh, this Messiah was going to be coming, he would be the son of God. David was wonderful. Basically, any country in the world would be improved by having David as their ruler. But he was still sinful. And he still had limits. And he was repentant, but he was still sinful. But God, when God is king, when people treat God as he should be as king, then they get a powerful king and they get a perfect king. Listen to Jeremiah 32 a little bit later. Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Listen to this. Nothing is too hard for you. That is the power of our God. Nothing is too hard for you. The God who made the universe. Have you spent time recently out where we don't have the city lights and you can see the stars, the thousands, millions of stars? My family, we love camping. Is one of our That's our go-to holidays, to go camping. And we get those moments where we get to keep the kids up a bit later and help them celebrate. Can you actually see? Look, there are stars. They really exist. You can see them at night. Look how many of them there are. It's beautiful. And God made them. And God is holding them there by his power. But he's not just that God. He's the God who made the trees and the leaves. And that each leaf is unique to that type of tree. And yet, across all trees, they are powerful. They are solar panels that are drawing in the sun's sun's rays and helping them to grow. God is the God of the universe, of galaxies, of solar systems, of stars, and of the small, of what we can't see. And he is powerful over both. And if he's powerful over all of that, friends, he is powerful over you and your life. He is strong. Nothing is too hard for him. But he's not just powerful, he's also perfect. Listen to how the psalmist in Psalm 18 says it. As for God, his ways are perfect. 
The Lord's word is flawless. He shields all who take refuge in him. He is perfect. And his perfection there, notice, he is a shield. His perfection means we can actually hide in him. That he is a good place. It's not just that he's powerful. He is good. He is wonderful and perfect. There is no ruler on earth who you could ever find, who could ever come slightly close to God. Not, not even an inch on what God has in his power and his perfection. And so Peter answers beautifully, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. That is who Jesus is. He is the king who reigns like his father in heaven. For all the hits and for all the misses that Peter sometimes has, he gets things wrong. Here is something he gets right. So friends, I want us to make sure that we are seeing Jesus for that. That he is your king, the perfect, powerful king. That trials will come. Hard times will come. Don't be shocked by them. Allow yourself to feel the pain of them and reach out to your perfect, powerful king who is good and can hold you. It is not too hard for your king to comfort you in your anguish, to hold on to you in your grief and pain. But then, I want us to see what it means, friends, to see our King, to see Jesus, to see our Messiah, and to see who we should be then, how that makes sense for us of who we are. If that is who Jesus is, how does that actually help me work out who I am? Well, Jesus helps us to see that in verse 21 and following. Have a look there. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now, Peter had an expectation of what Jesus was to do as the Messiah, and it wasn't that. So we saw one of his hits, one of his wonderful times that he gets it right. Now we see one of his terrible misses, but something that we would probably do as well. Verse 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Now, can you imagine that though? He's just declared that Jesus is the king, the king, the son of God, and now he's rebuking him. But he's doing it because he's saying, no, you're the king. You're never going to suffer like that. He's trying to put him back in his place and say, no, you are the king. Don't think that this is going to happen to you. But Jesus, verse 23, turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Uh, You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Friends, see how significant it is that we actually understand who Jesus is, right? Peter, who got it so, so right at first, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. It is a terrible tragedy to misunderstand who Jesus is and what he is about. Jesus came not to be the king who was going to stay on his throne, but he came as the king who had already left his throne to be in the dirt, to be in the pain, to feel the pain, to feel the humiliation of what it would be to be whipped and flogged and mocked and have to carry his cross and be nailed to it and jeered at while he slowly had his life drip away from him. 
That is the type of king Jesus is because he loves you so to such a degree that he wants you to have better than you have. He wants to free you from your sin and death. Much more powerful enemies than Rome. As we head to the Middle East and we see all these warring, conflicting nations, people are fearful for us. Jesus is much more powerful than that. And they have a much worse enemy than any enemy they are facing right now. They are facing death, where their sin hangs over them. That's the same for all of your friends and neighbours who you can ask this question to, who you can ask them, who do you think Jesus is? Sorry, no, what is your question? God will be good news if. You can ask them that and help them think about that because they need to know that God is good news. God is good news. You need, they need him. So I want us to make sure that we don't have human concerns when we look at Jesus. When we look at the church, it is also far too easy for us to be comfortable in church. To have the status of, oh, I go to church, I'm known, I have my jobs. But to not remember that the Christian life, what it means to have Jesus in our king, will mean hardship. Raise your eyes to see how wonderful Jesus is, to see him as king, and then have a look at verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Friends, follow after Jesus. And notice what it looks like to follow after Jesus. It's to take up your cross. It's to be like your king. Not to save. This isn't the cross of salvation. This is the cross of discipleship. This is giving up things that we want, denying ourselves. But friends, I want to suggest I think we're far too weak at denying ourselves. Now, I don't, I don't know you as well as I know myself and uh, as I know my church down there in Melbourne and as I know others, but I know that here in Australia, it is far too easy for us to deny giving up rather than denying ourselves, to deny the truth of this sort of verse rather than denying that we need to give up. One of the most dangerous sentences I think we say to each other is, it's not wrong for me to and then finish that sentence with whatever it might be for you. It's not wrong for me to go here for this holiday. It's not wrong for me to spend this money on whatever it might be. It's not wrong for me to uh, work hard and not see my family because I'm trying to love them and I'm I'm giving all of my time so that I can give them a good life. It's not wrong for me to do these things. And we can keep listing. And friends, there is Christian freedom. But be very careful of giving yourself that it's not wrong for me to sentence where you can excuse away what you want to do. But friends, if you follow after the true Messiah, the son of the living God, what it means, who are you? You are someone who follows after him, who denies yourself and takes up your cross and lives a life like him, who lives a life which is about people coming to see his glory, not about us. It's not about our glory. It's about his That's why we're going to the Middle East. And that's why I encourage you, please go ask your friends that question. Look what he says, verse 25. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. It's this counterintuitive way of thinking, but we need to get Jesus' way of thinking about the world 
and get rid of what we've got. We need to remember that if we want to actually save our life, and that can mean whatever, protect our life to be comfortable, protect our life to be whatever we want it to be. Friends, we're at risk of losing it. You're at risk of losing it. But if you're willing to follow and take up that cross of discipleship and following after Jesus and give up, deny yourself, lose your life so that people outside go, they are a fool. They could have the nicest house. They could have the nicest holidays. Their kids could be doing this. They could be doing... But you don't have those. That's not what people say about you. They say, they're a fool. They've given it all up. For what? For a guy who lived 2,000 years ago? You wouldn't be a fool. You would be giving up for the sake of many people coming to rejoice in Jesus. Of each other getting to rejoice in Jesus. Of your neighbours. As you send us, as you are sacrificially sending us, not just having money go back into to Marsfield's budget, but actually giving it to us, you are partnering in giving up yourselves to see people one for Jesus there. You are actually involved in gospel work in the Middle East of seeing the name of Jesus glorified there. Friends, it might sound hard, but remember the glory of our King and look at the wonderful promise Jesus holds out before him, before us. Look at verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels and he will reward each person according to what they have done. Jesus isn't asking you to just give up. Give up. It's not a monk life where we just need to keep getting rid of, and the more we get rid of, the better. It's that we're handing over our lives for the sake of something better. To see him glorified, to be with him around the throne, and to see others joining us in that. He isn't a king who is just saying, who is just taking a tax from us and trying to take. He is a king who is getting us to join him in the joy of many people getting to be around that throne. So friends, there is nothing you could give up in this life. Nothing you could give up in this life for the sake of Jesus' glory, for his name to go out across Sydney, to go out across Australia and across the world, across the Middle East, that won't be rewarded with great joy by your King, your Messiah, on that final day. I'm going to pray. Father God, we pray that you would fill us with a joy in seeing the greatness of Jesus. Help us to see him as the Messiah, the anointed King, your Son, who rules perfectly and powerfully. Help us to give up whatever it might be for the sake of uh, getting to see others Share in the joy of that glory. We pray that in your son's precious and powerful name. Amen.